0: Hey, uh, again, good morning. Welcome to Awaken Church. Glad to have you guys here. And we're in a series that we have just titled, um, you know, What the Bible Doesn't Say. And uh, there's a lot of things in Scripture that we say, that we create sayings and theology to back up what we think or believe, but actually the Bible doesn't really substantiate it. So we've been in a number of these different ones. Uh, Richard, uh, my co-pastor, did a phenomenal job last week, it was so great to have him preach, um, and he he just touched on God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Um, well, oftentimes we are faced with far more than we can handle, and the reason why is God wants to turn, to have us turn to Christ, and he wants us um, to give Christ our cares and our worries and our burdens and our sins, and Christ will take care of them. That's why God gives us more than we can handle. Uh, so it's just a phenomenal job. Um, I love it when Richard uh, preaches, and you guys are really blessed. Um, I was listening to it uh, online, and uh, he got me with that story from uh, D.L. Taylor, uh, the fake missionary. Uh, So if you guys missed it, it's worth uh, another read, Um, so it's worth another listen. So what the Bible doesn't say is our series, and our topic this morning is something that we've all probably have said before, Um, hate the sin, love the sinner. I've shared that before. Um, we we say that pretty frequently, I think. Uh, sometimes we say that when we're just trying to, you know, we're guilty and we know we're guilty. <laughs> and so we kind of like pat ourselves on the back, and give ourselves a little bit of grace. Hate the sin, but still love me. Like, it's not who I am. Um, so where did this series and where did this saying come from? Um. Again, the series came because we wanted to help us as a community reconstruct theology around God's word, but this saying specifically, hate the sin, love the sinner, comes from St. Augustine. He was writing actually to a convent of nuns uh, around 400 A.D., and he says to them, act with love towards the sinner and hatred towards the sin. So obviously that's not a Bible verse, uh, but it comes from a well-known church father In the 20th century, that was echoed, that was retweeted by Gandhi, and Gandhi said, hate the sin and not the sinner. So we have some great wisdom, seemingly great wisdom, from a church father, from a super popular icon in the 20th century, but it's wisdom that doesn't come from we're going to tackle that head-on this morning. And as we do that, just a reminder, so this series is uh, an Awaken Q&A series. So if you've got uh, a question or a comment you want to send it in, just type it into Awaken QA. We're going to take about five or six minutes at the end of the time uh, to tackle those things. So awaken and at gmail.com. We're going to turn to a very familiar story, uh, Luke 10, 25 through 37. And for most of you guys, you've probably heard this story before. Uh, if you hadn't, well, this will be uh, your first time. But it is the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So go ahead and turn there, Luke 10, 25 um, through 37. Again, bonus if you, uh, you know, brought your uh, cordless Bible, whether you're going old school or new school. Um, if you're going new school, uh, you got a tablet or it's a phone, so you can type in questions right away. So flip over to Luke 10. Um, 25 through 37. If you're going old school with your cordless Bible, it says cordless, old school. Um, Gospel of Luke. And uh, flip over there. We'll give you guys a minute to orient yourself in the text. But Luke 10, we're going to start in verse 25. And just some quick context for this Uh, Jesus has sent out um, his disciples, 70 of them. Uh, to go to all the towns and villages that he is planning on preaching in. So he's kind of sent out his disciples as like a flash mob to go get everybody ready. Uh, So some great marketing, some great advertising strategy here. Sends them out two by two to go all these towns and villages where he's going to come preach the gospel. Um, They come back and they're like, Jesus, they're ready. They're ready to hear. Um, And and then he starts going to these villages. He starts going to these towns. He starts preaching the kingdom. And we're going to telescope in because he meets an expert. Um, we all mean experts in our lives. So he meets an expert, and that's where we're going to start in Luke 10, 25. Just then, an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who's my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by the other side. In the same way a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. It's a beautiful story, a rich story, um, and something that we maybe don't see man lying on the side of the road in need of assistance, having been beaten, and so let's understand the context of this passage a little bit more. So again, we're not really sure who the man is, Jesus just says there's a dude, there was a man. Um, So he could have been Jewish, he could have been from another nationality, we don't know, but most likely he was a Jew. And here's the deal, he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and Jews didn't like Jericho for a number of reasons. They didn't like Jericho because that's kind of where a new economic center was being built by Herod. They didn't like Jericho because you did business with the Gentiles there. It was dirty money. And so already we're coming into this with this possible man being a little unscrupulous. Maybe he's a merchant, a businessman, but he's going after the dirty money. It's like he's cheating to get ahead. We don't like that. Nobody likes cheaters. Nobody likes people who kind of skirt the law. So Jesus talks to this expert in the law, starts painting this picture, and again, if you look at Jewish culture, there's like, there's like it's like an NBA team, there's always three superstars, okay? Same thing in Jewish culture, there's three superstars. There's the experts in the law, the scribes, there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the leaders of the people, and then there was the Levites one who performed sacrifices in the temple. So those are your three NBA superstars of Jewish culture. And Jesus is going to go right after them. But here's the thing that we don't pick up in this passage. The first guy who passed by, a priest, he was hating sin. He was doing exactly what our topic's on. He was hating the sin because, you see, if he became bloodied, if he stopped and bandaged this man's wound, he would become unclean. He would not be allowed to perform and be around people. He would not be allowed to shepherd and be with people and fulfill his priestly duties. And so he said, I've got to go around on the other side. I've got to hate the sin. Levite, again, same thing. A Levite is not allowed to be soaked with blood when he comes to the temple to offer sacrifices. A Levite has to stay clean. So he hates the sin as well, and he goes on the other side. And then we get the Samaritan guy, and Jews and Samaritans, um, it's kind of like bad blood between them. Because Samaritans believe that the Jews were worshiping in the wrong place. They were worshiping in the temple. And they should not have been. They should be worshiping the mountain that God had given them to worship. The mountain, as said in the Torah, in Deuteronomy. But this Samaritan stops. He's okay with becoming unclean. He's okay with loving this guy. He's okay with paying it forward putting it in, doing all these good things. And and we read that and we're like, yes, Jesus is telling us to be like the Samaritan, to kind of put our ethnic differences aside, put our racial identities aside. I think those are really great interpretations of this passage, but the only problem is we've already started down the slippery slope of, of probably constructing a theology that doesn't get to the point of why Jesus is giving this parable. And so let's go back to this this saying, hate the sin, love the sinner. Sometimes we can construct theology from culture. And so we can come to this, again, well-known, beloved passage. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. We teach it to our kids so they can be kind all the time, right? And so we construct this theology from culture that says we need to have compassion, We should have mercy. We should be like the good Samaritan. We should do good. We should pay it forward. We should be affirming to people, no matter their lifestyle. We should be friendly to people. We should be loving to all. We should not let differences divide us. And again, I'm here saying those are all great things, but I don't think that's what this passage is getting at. And I think it's important for us as the people of God to try to understand what Jesus is driving at. So we can construct theology from culture, which is bad. Because all those things that I just said, godless people would agree with. Liberals would agree with it. Socialists would agree with it. Mormons would agree with it. Muslims would agree with it. Jews would agree with it. There's nothing about that message that I just shared that is different from if a Jewish rabbi was up here, if an Islamic imam was up here, if another holy leader was up here. Nothing different about that message. They would all affirm hey, do good to your neighbor, have compassion, have mercy. So let's go back to this idea of we need to construct theology from Christ. And then we have to ask ourselves, what's the point of a parable? Which is a great, a great question, because sometimes we read parables and we're like, cool story, bro. Like, that was a good one, Jesus. You really got him that time. Most of the time, parables were told to the people who had it figured out. What is the point of the parable? Again, it is an expert in the law coming to Jesus and asking him, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus asked him back the same question. How do you read the law? Again, it's an expert in the law. He's got a great answer. He goes to two passages from the Torah. He goes to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God. And then he goes all the way to Leviticus, to love your neighbor. So he's given the textbook answer. But we haven't realized what a parable really is yet. You see, parables are prophetic confrontations meant to reveal in us something that we are lacking. Because Christ is revealing the heart of this man. And here is what he is revealing. And I think this is so important. Again, parables are prophetic confrontations. They force you to make a choice. When we read a parable, I want to encourage you guys, when you guys read a parable in Scripture, like, let one parable be the rest of your quiet time. Just stop. Don't try to read anymore. Let one parable be your quiet time. And ask yourself, what is the choice? that Jesus is giving me through this story. He was a beautiful, masterful storyteller, and he wanted people to make choices. You got to the end of a parable, and Jesus Christ demands a response from you, not cool story, bro, not great quiet time. Let me read the next thing. Let me read the next verse. There's a choice. There's something deep inside of us that Jesus Christ And here's what Jesus is wanting to confront this expert in the law about. Because you see, this expert in the law wants to be right. He wants to be right. He wants his interpretation, his understanding, his knowledge of the law to be right. And isn't that what we want? I mean, so many of us, we want to be affirmed, we want to be right. Just let me be right. Even when we read scripture, that's why nobody likes to repent of heresy or recant of bad doctrine. We want to be right. And Jesus is telling this expert in the law, the law is actually not what hangs in the balance. What hangs in the balance is life. The life of this man is, bloodied and broken and bruised and left for dead on the side of the road. Life hangs in the balance, not law. Rightfully so. Those priests, the Levites, even us, rightfully so, we should hate sin. God hates sin. Over and over again. It's one of the refrains of the Old Testament. God hates sin. But here's the deal. Life hangs in the balance, and life is more important than the law. Because that's what the expert in the law asked. Did he not? He asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But he understood it as, what must I do to have my interpretation of Scripture be right? Christ reveals the heart, and life hangs in the balance, not the law. And so when we begin to construct theology from Christ, we have to ask ourselves several key questions, because the parable of the Good Samaritan is not a parable about morality. It's not a parable about being good, about paying it forward, about helping other people. It's a parable that reveals the heart of God. And so, who gives the law? Well, there's only one lawgiver. Who interprets the law? Jesus Christ. What can pay for breaking the law? Only blood can pay for breaking the law. Who can offer the sacrifice? Well, only a perfect high priest can offer the sacrifice. Who alone can offer compassion and forgiveness across ethnic and racial lines? Who can pay it forward? Who can ultimately pay for future expenses? Not us. Who can ultimately pay for future infractions or sins? It's not us. It's Christ. And then who can command others to go and do likewise? It's not us. It's Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is revealing through this parable that he actually stands at the epicenter of the law. The word for this, um, the word for this that uh, the Jews were given, the Hebrews were given, when they came out of Egypt, was atonement. And see, atonement was when an animal was sacrificed for the sins of the people so that they could go free. That was the fulfillment of the law. And we see Christ is here as the perfect spotless lamb who shed his blood and the perfect high priest who administered the sacrifice. You see, Christ was not the Levite or the priest who said, I'm going to pass from a distance because I don't want to become unclean. Christ was the Levite and the priest who said, I'm willing to become unclean for this person. I'm willing to give them mercy. I'm willing to sacrifice my life. I'm willing to pay it forward for them. And so when we look at hate the sin, love the sinner, I think we need to start to construct it again. And so I put three statements that I think will help us have a biblical, theological view of this. The first is this, God hates the sin, and God punishes the sinner. This is the story from the garden. God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, and yet what does he do? He sheds the blood of animals to cover them. Jesus was made to be our sin. one of the themes of the New Testament. It's what many of the apostles preached and taught. And because Jesus was made to be our sin, God punished Jesus. You see, God, God does not love sinners. We've, I, I think we have to wrap our minds around that. God does not send sins to hell, God sends sinners to hell. God punishes sinners. But because Jesus Christ shed his blood, because he was our high priest, because he bore our sins, this is what happens. God loves his son who he raised from the dead And God loves his adopted children. This is what John 3.16 is about. It's not for God love the sinners of the world. It's God loved his son and sent his son so that whoever should believe would no longer be a sinner but would have life and love in him. Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God in him will not be under banishment or exile or punishment. And so, yeah, I know that we're still going to sin you are still going to make mistakes, but if you believed in Jesus Christ, his shed blood on the cross covers your sin, and you are no longer under the punishment and wrath of God because God will punish sinners, but God will love his children, and he knows they're his children because Jesus Christ has atoned for them, has shed his blood for them. If you have questions, send them in, awake in Q&A at gmail.com. Where does that leave us, though? Where does that leave us with, you know, hate the sin and love the sinner? Because we're still wrestling through that. I think, again, once, and my hope is once we've laid this foundation of the gospel, we can begin to approach this the right way. I'd love to give you some alternatives, some alternatives from Scripture about how to approach hate the sin and love the sinner. So instead of hate the sin, Scripture tells us to actually flee from sin, run away from it, quickly. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 11, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, and 6, 18, flee from sin, flee from youthful lust. Get out of there. We should stop trying to think we can beat sin. Christ beats sin. We're just called to flee. We're called to run away from it. To put as much distance away as possible. Because, you see, I think if we focus on hating the sin, there's a lot of people I know who hate certain sins, but yet they still commit them. Because they're enslaved to them. The Bible says resist temptation. James 4, 7, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. When sin come upon us, we should resist temptation, not hate it. And then what happens if we screw up? What happens if we mess up? What happens if we get angry at our spouse? What happens if we lie to our parents? The Bible gives us this beautiful remedy called confession. Confess your sins. James 5.16, 1 John 1.9. Confess your sins one to another. So instead of hate the sin, do these three things. These three things are more substantiated in Scripture. I think they're a little bit easier for us to wrap our minds around. All right, instead of love the sinner, uh, Scripture says to actually rebuke the sinner. Confront the sinner. Tell the sinner that they're wrong. But that's not a popular cultural position. You see, a popular cultural position is when we build our theology from Christ, and we go, or, or from culture, and we build our theology from culture, and we go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we say, "Just do good to everyone. Just love people. It's okay. Like, you know, they're going, their life's going off the rails, but just gotta let it go." Scripture tells us to rebuke the sinner. First Timothy five twenty, James five twenty, rebuke the sinner. Um, Scripture tells us to have nothing to do with the sinner, especially if there's someone in our covenant community. If there's someone in our church and they're continually in sin, unrepentant, have nothing to do with him. This happened in uh, Corinth. There's a guy who liked to sleep around, liked to sleep around so much that he was even sleeping with his mother in law. And Paul said to the church, Kick him out, get him out of the church. Discipline him in front of everybody. And that's a hard word. You see, we don't like shame in our culture. But Paul tells the community, in front of everybody, kick him out. Bring his sin to light. Don't let it remain hidden any longer. So they do that. A couple years pass and he repents and he wants back in. And Paul tells that church community, hey, you got to let him back in right now. He's repented. He's confessed his sin. Sometimes God calls us to have nothing to do with sinners. And that's hard. Because we do love people. That's hard sometimes when they're in circles of family. That's hard sometimes to do. But I think it's... A beautiful picture that we have for the third thing is that we have opportunities to forgive and restore the sinner as well. Because Christ has walked down that road already. Christ has forgiven them and restored them. And so when they confess and when they desire to change, we have the opportunity to wrap them up in a big bear hug and say, All right, welcome back. Welcome back. A quick note, uh, a final note, and then we'll tackle some questions. So, again, if you have questions or comments, send them in. I think um, my hope is is that as a community and as a body of believers is that we don't get too militant with this. I think that was one of the problems that Jesus was also trying to confront with that expert in the law. They had gotten really militant about who their neighbor was. And and I think Jesus' final command to that expert in the law blew his mind because the heretic, the Samaritan was the one who got got the law right. The priest didn't get it right. The Levite didn't get it right. The expert himself didn't get it right because they all wanted to uphold the law without upholding life. The law brings death. Jesus Christ brings life. And the law is meant to lead us and tutor us into life. And so one last thought for us is in all of our dealings, we should practice mercy as a people who understand judgment. That's what Jesus tells this expert in the law. Practice mercy. Mercy is going to triumph over judgment. Mercy is going to soften your heart towards people who are in sin. Mercy is going to lead you back to the heart of God, the word of God, which should be our (laughs) ever-present companion when we ever have to rebuke a sinner, when we ever have to struggle with fleeing from sin, but we are a people who've been given mercy. And so in all of our dealings, we should strive and work hard to practice mercy. Mercy is our first step in dealing with people. So I hope that has helped um, tackle this, uh, this difficult topic of hate the sin and love the sinner.